they would study their garbage and they would interview them. What do you serve your family? Oh, well, we are, we're on a strict, you know, lettuce and cottage cheese and filtered water diet. And then they go out and they look at the trash and the trash is full of scotch bottles and bacon wrappers. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, we're joined by P.J. Capilotti from Pennsylvania State's Abington College for the second half of our conversation on his research into the archaeology of the recent past, which he chronicles in his new book, Adventures in Archaeology. In the first half of our discussion, which you might want to listen to first at parsingscience.org E38, we talked about Pete's study of artifacts from shoreline and transoceanic expeditions. In today's installment of Parsing Science, he'll talk with us about his explorations of aeronautical and aerospace archaeology. While we often associate archaeology with the study of cultures whose eras have long since come and gone, Pete's work focuses on the archaeology of the more recent past. We continued the conversation by asking him if this direction was considered unusual when he completed his graduate work in the 1990s. It wasn't until I got to grad school and started to study sort of semi-professionally that it occurred to me that, that I was out on a limb in more ways than one because I was in a department at Rutgers University with really esteemed uh, paleoanthropologists like Jack Harris and Rob Blumenshine and, and uh, Celeste Samao and, and people that were doing really groundbreaking stuff in, in Ethiopia and Kenya on sites that were two and a half million years old. And so it took a bit of convincing for them to kind of accept what I was doing on a site of an airship that was 100 years old as being archaeological. But I sort of adopted the philosophy of Michael Schiffer, a great uh, archaeologist who wrote a wrote what I consider the seminal uh, book, uh, Formation Processes of the Archaeological Record, and had such an influence on me because it goes through all of these ways in which the things that are produced by humans are changed and modified after they're discarded. So I eventually convinced them that anything that humans had discarded was archaeological, and then, and they bought it. So, so I, I got my ticket stamped eventually. Aeronautical archaeology is the focus of the third part of Pete's book. Among other expeditions, he describes the failed 1907 attempt by the journalist and explorer Walter Wellman to reach the North Pole via airship. Both because of the relatively recent inventions, and also since downed aircraft are rarely recovered intact, if they're recovered at all, Brian and I wanted to learn what goes into studying aeronautical technologies. When you talk to, say, museum folks who work for the Air Force and so forth, they kind of dread this whole idea of putting planes on display. They call them planes on a stick. You know, outside of every Air Force base, there's a plane on a stick, and they're hard to maintain. They're assaulted by the weather and so forth. And I mean, when you're a museum professional, you want a museum climate control, temperature control. You want everything undercover because that's the point. Your, your, your career is devoted to preservation. But preservation of what exactly? At what point in the life of that piece of technology uh, are you trying to show? It's, it's not terribly uh, important when you're dealing with a stone tool of two million years ago, but absolutely critical uh, in, in the life of a piece of technology that might have undergone different models, different uh, phases, different modifications, different paint schemes, you name it. And it didn't hit me in my work until I was on Walter Wellman's site in the Arctic. It didn't hit me until I saw a squashed can. I was under some soil, so I had to dig it out. Uh, and it was an armor meat can from Chicago, which of course was Wellman's town. But it was filled with some kind of black gunk. Somebody had used it for like, like a, uh, not an oil can, but there was some gummy substance in there with a stick in it. So clearly they had taken this can, they obviously used it 
reused it. The, obviously, the armor, ham, or whatever meat was in there from uh, 1906, 1907 was long gone, and it had been reused as a kind of like a paint or grease can or something, and, and then been discarded again. But at what point would you put that artifact on display and to demonstrate what? Its, its use, its origin, its reuse. For all anybody knows, it was picked up by somebody long after Walter Wellman was long gone and used for their purposes and then and then chucked away. So you would have to sit down and, and, and take into account multiple avenues, uh, just exactly what you thought that artifact might be saying. The stories in Adventures in Archaeology describe Pete's investigations, not just into the artifacts that explorers have intentionally discarded, but also those resulting from expeditions which ended in failure. Doug and I asked what he thinks can be learned from such failures, as well as how explorers of recent times have handled them. You can't study the American approach to the North Pole without being an expert in, in failure. Uh, there, there's never been a successful American polar explorer. And I know that's going to come as a shock to a lot of folks, but you can look back through the whole lineage from Elijah Kent Kane through to Robert Peary, Frederick Cook, Walter Wellman, uh, Evelyn Briggs Baldwin, Anthony Fiala, Richard Byrd. They were all manifest failures. And so you could not study that subject without becoming intensely familiar with failure. And some of the nuances that would go into that study would be could these folks cover up their failure? And this goes back to the kind of hoax aspect of things. Uh, I, I think the claim to the North Pole by Peary, certainly by Cook uh, in 1909, were both exposed over the years as hoaxes. Same with Bird's claim to have been to the North Pole in a plane in the 1920s. That was clearly a hoax. But people like Wellman who tried to go in an airship, well, it's, it's hard to hide an airship and Wellman didn't. And so as I was would be lecturing you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago about Walter Wellman, everybody would say, well, Wellman was that fool. And yeah, he had foolish aspects to him, but he also pioneered a lot of technological breakthroughs, wireless transmissions from the Arctic and, and so forth. And he never lied about his failures. And I don't think he embellished them either. He, he threw them out there as grand adventures, which I think they were. And true, it would be very difficult to fake a trip to the North Pole in, a, in, a, in an airship. I suppose it could have been done 100 years ago, but uh, you would have been found out even then, I think, pretty clearly. But an overland expedition, especially like with Cook, who claimed he was going by, his, by himself, or Bird, who was flying with just his navigator, who he could swear to secrecy and did, uh, although he let the cat out of the bag uh, afterwards. Within a week, both Cook and Perry returned to what is referred to as civilization, and both claim to have been at the North Pole within the last year, and both were lying. And, and of course, that triggers Roald Amundsen, the great Norwegian explorer, to go not north but south. And by going south, he gets into the race with Scott, which ends up with the death, the British explorer Robert Falcon Scott, which ends up with the death of Scott and all of his men at the South Pole. All of these things triggered by two American lies. And this idea that you would lie I think was not something that Americans would even consider conceivable on the part of their public figures before 1909. Uh, uh, and after 1909, it became completely believable. Archaeologist interest in detritus can be traced back to William Rathje, who in the 1970s studied the contents of people's trash in Tucson, Arizona, to learn more about our patterns of consumption, and found that what people say about their consumption habits isn't always borne out by the contents of their waste bins. We were curious to learn how Pete believes that Rathji's work has influenced the practice of archaeology today. It's something that nobody thought about. And I think one of the most wonderful things to come out of that was the way that, and Richard Gould, the great anthropologist, speaks to this as well in, uh, in archaeological, anthropo anthropological archaeology, I should say, that 
the archaeological record can be used to filter the paper record. You know, Hemingway has this, you know, that famous quote, paper doesn't bleed, but of course it does. And uh, what people write down is not and never has been exactly what happened. It's always been from the point of view, perspective, and all of the experiences of the person doing the writing. And what Gould and what Rathji showed in their respective work, Gould with Second World War aircraft, for example, and, and with shipwrecks in Bermuda, and Rathji with the, uh, the Projet du Garbage, was what people say they do and what people do are two very different things. And you can do oral histories with people, but then you're also dealing with, uh, with the foibles of human memory, and uh, that is an adventure into, unto itself. For example, with the garbage project, you know, they would interview folks, they would study their garbage and they would interview them. What do you serve your family? Oh, well, we are, we're on a strict, you know, lettuce and cottage cheese and filtered water diet. And then they go out and they look at the trash and the trash is full of scotch bottles and bacon wrappers. So you have these, these what, what people believe they're doing in a subjective way, and then you have what they're actually doing in an objective, measurable reality. And I did this. I applied those those lessons to Walter Wellman and his airship site in the Arctic. He was a journalist. He wrote all the time. So you could test what he said about his airship. And maybe the only only unique thing I've ever done, which is that I could actually go back to specific statements that he made and test the veracity of them through the archaeological record. In episode 35 of the show, we spoke with science historian Jean-Francois Gauvin, who explained why museums so often exhibit only pristine objects, rather than those whose patterns of wear could confer stories of their use, repurposing, and cannibalization. So we wondered, what might it be like if museums did give visitors a better sense of the systemic context in which the artifacts on display were originally used? Traditionally, museums have gone after the, the, the shiny uh, object because that's what people want to see. It's what brings people into the museum. But like the, uh, the ham can, these things, I think, speak to us much more than something that might one day find its way into a museum. And uh, so the chapter that I, I, where I talk about what we did down on the Delaware River, we uh, found broken glass, broken plates, and so forth at these different levels of this mud bank. And I often thought it would be nice to lay them out on, say, plexiglass strata, a stratigraphic display on plexiglass so people could look down through the strata uh, and see our, our work, where these little bits and pieces came from, because they're the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily see in a, uh, in a museum collection. They're just not sexy enough. And, and yet the, the patterns, the distribution, what they say about what these people did at this estate, I think is fascinating. And I was very pleased to, to see that the estate where we were working almost 20 years ago now they're going to start running tours of people from the riverside, from the creek side, not just from the land side. And, and I told them about the book and after, after apologizing for not writing this up for 20 years, said, uh, would you be interested in putting some of this stuff on display? And they were, absolutely. They want to show people what people from the estate chucked into the river. So, so we're going to try to, I hope, maybe uh, do a kind of garbology project in miniature, not just of the shiny stuff that survives in the main house of the state, but the stuff that these people did not think worthy enough of saving, or it was broken and they just chucked it out uh, over the years, and what that says about them as well. The final part of Pete's book concerns archaeology as it relates to humans' exploration of outer space. Given NASA's apparent commitment to sending humans to Mars, we asked what factors he believes should be considered in planning for a base camp in space. We'll hear what he had to say after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, 
they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Pete Capilotti. The question of a base camp, say, in Antarctica or the Arctic versus uh, a base camp in space has actually been studied both from the point of view of the base camps themselves, what do they look like, how would they be arranged, and from the whole social aspect as well. What can you learn from the heroic era of exploration uh, voyages to the South Pole, North Pole? Do you go to, the, to this big national expedition or do you go to the small, exploring, highly technical mission like a Roald Amundsen, like an Ernest Shackleton, or or Charles Lindbergh, for that matter. Do you send? Do you do you not send three, five, seven, twelve, fifteen, twenty people to Mars? Do you just send one person? And I've often wondered, and I, I wrote about this some forty years ago, nearly. And I think this is even more true now than it was when I wrote this in the early nineteen eighties. If you want to keep the public's interest in this era of just overwhelming information. How would you do that? And I think the way you would do that is you would send one person. Because I think you're vested in one person in a way that you're not vested in a crew. And some of the folks who crossed the Pacific in these experimental voyages went alone. William Willis is a perfect example. It can be done, and I think it should be done. I think, and, and I wouldn't want to be a, a member of the selection committee who had to pick this individual, but I think if, if you settled on one person, all of all of uh, Homo sapiens would be invested in this uh, this single Homo sapien going to Mars and 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 trying to survive there. And, and once you start to add two, then you need three because one of them has to be a doctor, and and then, then you need a, a, this and you need that, and then you're going to need a, a cultural person and 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 so forth and so on. So where do you stop? Uh, and and I and I, I think you just got to go with one person, see if they can get, get there, and just tell us what it's like. For probably as long as humans have gazed toward the stars and wondered what might lie among them, the prospect of intelligent life beyond Earth has enticed scientists and non-scientists alike. Such a discovery would almost certainly be a boon for all sciences, but it would seem that archaeology might be in a special position of authority when it came to making sense of extraterrestrial cultures, as Pete discusses next. We've had radio telescopes for 30, 40, 50 years now. Why, why are we hearing only static? And Isaac Asimov pointed out that, yeah, 30, 40, 50 years, that's wonderful that you've had this technology for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Life has been evolving on the planet in this kind of bizarre random pattern, as Darwin would say, uh, half a billion years. And intelligence has only been around for a very short amount of time. And technological intelligence has only been around for a couple hundred years. And the ability to communicate or listen to what might be going on out there has only been around for a few decades. You would have to find another civilization, well, another life form that had, that had developed intelligence, that had developed civilization, that had developed radio telescopes, that had the ability for space travel, that, as Asimov said, had not gotten so advanced that it had destroyed itself, as we could do today or tomorrow with atomic weapons. And to think that you could find another planet that had developed all of those things that was in the exact same spot where we are now that could communicate with us in real time across the distances required in space and the communications times that would be required is so minuscule as to be as to be impossible so that's very depressing if you're looking for klingons or vulcans 
uh, and you're expecting that we're going to start the United Federation of Planets. On the other hand, if you're an archaeologist, Asimov threw out this incredible statistic when he did all this math that you would find out there some 325 million civilizations in ruins. And of course, that was 325 million planets where there would be civilization in ruins. If you took Earth as your corollary, where we've got the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas, the ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians, the, the Indus Valley civilization, Easter Island, all of these places that no longer exist as civilizations that we can identify. We're talking about, what, 8, 10, 12, 15 dead civilizations. So if you multiply that by 325 million, now you're talking about billions of potential potential archaeological sites out there. So it, it begins to stagger the mind uh, when you, you think about how much archaeology could potentially be out there to do with artifacts of intelligence of non-Earth-based human in intelligence. It could never be done. And conversely, the paleontological corollary to that is, of course, you're pr probably not going to find life on Mars, but you, if, if life was there, you're going to find fossils of it. So my choice for the per first person to go to Mars would be a paleontologist. I'd, you know, I'd find some paleontologist who does you know, prehistoric bacteria and send them to Mars, even at the risk of not coming back. Writing up the potential for humans to expand into outer space, the theoretical physicist and mathematician Freeman Dyson said that it's really a question of, shall we be one species or a million? Since humans born and raised off-planet would almost certainly develop different norms and produce different cultural artifacts than we're familiar with here on Earth, Ryan and I asked Pete his thoughts on the possibility that the first extraterrestrials that humans make contact with might not be aliens at all, but rather be the descendants of explorers whose children were born in space. Once you send groups in opposite directions in, into space, the chances of them ever contacting each other anyway is, is remote. But they would, they would have different politics, and within a few generations, the original point of the mission would be long gone, humans being what they are. That's why science fiction exists, right? I mean, it's, it's to, to, to imagine what, what, what these things might be, because they wouldn't be anything like what had been sent. Because once you got away from Earth for more than a, a generation or two, you'd never be able to come back here because the gravity would kill you, and you would be developing a, a whole new language. And you see this throughout you know, the, the, the Pacific. You go to a different island, this island is an, a coral atoll that doesn't have anything over you know, four feet tall, uh, this island has beautiful, uh, you know, 10,000 foot uh, mountains. Those are different places, different words, different geographies to require different cultural responses. Perfect example was when we landed at an airstrip in a place called Minyambo in, in New Guinea about 20 years ago. Uh, and the pilot had to come in in his Cessna 172 and do this crazy landing uphill on this like, you know, ridiculous 20 degree upslope airfield. Very dangerous. Well, at least it was to me because I was in the back seat uh, and helpless to do anything about it one way or the other. And uh, we were talking with the local missionaries. They were actually from a couple from Wisconsin, a lovely couple. And uh, somebody made a comment about the airfield. It was probably me. And they said, the fascinating uh, thing is that we've been trying to teach the folks who live here the concept of what, it, what, what a flat surface is because they live in these very steep hills and they've never known anything but life in these very steep hills. And this airfield, on the angle that it's on, as dangerous as it is, is as close as we got to flat. Because it was as close as we could get them to understand the concept of flat. Flat as we understand flat, like a flat basketball court type airfield. <laughs> Those kind of things would be going on all over the universe. And yes, so once we came back into contact, we would be contacting people who were, who were fundamentally different, who had different terminology for everything uh, from just completely different ways of uh, adapting. 
archaeological research is a cross-disciplinary undertaking, borrowing from and contributing back to any number of natural and socio-behavioral sciences. So we asked Pete what he's learned from other disciplines, as well as what other branches of science might glean from methods employed by archaeologists, such as those he used when investigating the fate of a fiberglass copy of the fishing boat Orca, which was abandoned after the completion of the 1975 movie Jaws. Well, you have to define the, the discipline. For example, in, in this country, we would call an ethnologist a cultural anthropologist or type of cultural anthropologist. But one of the people on my committee, a historian, Norwegian historian named Susan Barr, she's an ethnologist. She's considered an ethnologist. What is an ethnologist in Scandinavia? It's somebody who looks at uh, archaeological remains on the surface. So the idea that you could do archaeology on the surface was something that I hadn't considered because I just assumed that you know we dig stuff up. Uh, but uh, archaeology, like the Orca site, uh, I found from uh, aerial photos. Uh, I mean, folks knew where it was. I didn't know where it was. I had to identify it, find out how to get into that site and so forth. That was all done remotely. So remote sensing came into it. Popular culture and probably the the, the nicest uh, uh, fellow on uh, my uh, committee was a guy named Mike Rockland, who was chair of the American Studies Department at uh, Rutgers University. Wonderful man who had written a book on, a best-selling book on mobile homes. And so here I was in a room with people working on two and a half million year old stone tools and another guy on my committee doing equally important work on homes that you could move <laughs> on, you know, homes on wheels. Uh, so uh, American studies, cultural studies, popular culture, uh, film studies, media studies, uh, journalism studies, uh, demography, all of those things have fed into um, what I've done and I have benefited from all of it. and and. Really, that's that's not unusual in anthropology and archaeology because the time when you could claim to know everything about even a subdiscipline is long gone. We just can't can't do it. I mean, I I know nothing about how to fly a rocket, and as much as I'm interested in bases and rockets and rocket gantries and so forth, I, could I launch a manned rocket or have any conception of how it's done? No, but I could interview people competently and find out how it's done. So you decide what area you're going to explore, and then you bring to bear the tools in your toolkit that can best help solve that problem. Since his specialization is in the archaeology of the recent past, we were interested in whether the field of archaeology has undergone dramatic changes over time, or if its evolution has been more incremental. To close out our conversation, Pete shared his thoughts on the question, as well as his predictions for the future of the discipline. Yeah, the last 75 years, I would say, you saw the professionalization by people like George Bass of, of underwater archaeology, which wasn't really taken seriously until his work. I mean, Cousteau had done some of it. There was a tradition of finding sites underwater, but kind of hacking them to pieces with grappling hooks and so forth. And then you had Cousteau in the late 40s, early 50s, and Cousteau doing some very sophisticated technological stuff. But getting kind of bored with the boring parts of archaeology. And then you saw the fields like industrial heritage archaeology. Those were kind of heritage studies. They were all kind of off to the side. They were things you did if you ran Plymouth Plantation or Williamsburg and so forth. But they weren't taken seriously until people like Ivor Noel Hume and uh, Stanley South uh, in the 1970s, really 60s, 70s, early 80s, really took those fields and professionalized them and said, you know, we can learn tremendous amounts not just from these 
archaeological sites, but from the way they're presented to the public. And of course, a, a lot of that is, has changed and modified as people have realized that it wasn't just a white male world for 400 years. There were a lot of other voices out there and we're just starting to discover those and present many of them to the public. So that whole process is going on continuously. And you know, I, I, I was at a conference in Sweden last summer and honestly, I've been in this field for going on uh, 40 years now and I almost didn't understand what people were saying. And I, and I sat in the back and I said, this really is the way things are supposed to be. People like me are supposed to do what we do and then leave the stage and leave it to a whole new generation that's going to look at things totally differently than, than we did. And that's just the way things are supposed to work. That was P.J. Capilotti discussing his new book, Adventures in Archaeology, published by the University Press of Florida. You'll find a link to the book at parsingscience.org e39, along with bonus content and other material that he discussed during the episode. If you're interested in the latest developments in science, you can sign up for our weekly roundup of the week's most popular science news at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or, if you'd like to check out our issues from 2018 first, go to parsingscience.org news. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Evelyn Carter and John Feingold from the University of California, Los Angeles. They'll talk with us about their research into what social science can tell us about the Supreme Court's use of social science. I recognize that even though people want the really simple answer, I think actually what my plea to people who want to incorporate social science into their judicial decision making is to allow space for scientists like me to present that complexity. And I can still give you right a concrete answer, but I am always going to give you the caveats. I'm always going to give you the other things to consider. We hope that you will join us again.